ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends, and welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Ryan Last, happy to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down the road of wrestling history, talking about his personal trials and tribulations, as well as everything he witnessed, as well as the story of his family in wrestling. There's so much on each episode of the Studcast, but without any further ado, so I can stop myself from babbling right now, I'm going to go to the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Hello, good to be with you, Brian. Always a pleasure. Um, really, uh, really got a great episode today and uh, a lot of th- different things to talk about today. Just as you mentioned, uh, we seem to be all over everywhere. And uh, when we get these two questions at the end of the programs, it usually it takes us in an even different direction. But I kind of like that. And I, I think the fans are pretty much into that. They understand that they're going to get a broad history history lesson there, a wrestling history lesson. And uh, that's what I see a lot of comments that I get is uh, it's like they consider me some type of wrestling historian and they're going to get a lesson each time they listen. And and today's, it's going to be quite a bit here, there, and everywhere. But uh, uh, we're into something here I'm just really, really hyped on. And uh, and obviously, after the first one we just did last week, that first episode on the Snake Pit, uh, fans around the world are just as hyped as I am on it. I mean, really exploded last week in numbers. And, and, and I really thank all the fans for listening. And comments are just fabulous about the Snake Pit. Uh, and I, I knew it would be uh, when you when you live those things, uh, it's something that I would have liked to have told in my first two or three episodes. I'd have been talking about something like the snake pit, but because I decided I wanted to do my entire family and I wanted to make it chronological and just see if I could really tell my story of everything. And as you said, a lot of it has to do with me. A lot of it has to do with my family. Uh, and today's episode is going to have to do with a gentleman named uh, Gordon Nelson. And uh, if you don't mind, Brian, I'm going to jump right into her. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, the reaction has been overwhelming. People have been so intrigued by the snake pit. You brought up so many names, Bob Roop, Jack Briscoe, Eddie Graham, Hiro Matsuda, of course yourself, who were in the snake pit, but there was one name we didn't touch on. He wasn't there right away, but that is Gordon Nelson. Yes. 
And uh, oddly enough, uh, uh, Gordon came just one time. It was the, it was the only visit he ever made to the snake pit, and he brought us a present, basically. Uh, uh, those of us that were there and trying to learn how to shoot and trying to learn the best holes that we could actually learn and being able to apply them properly. And Gordon Nelson brings us the prize gift. And uh, before I go there, I just want to try to make fans aware of who Gordon Nelson was. Uh, I realize that Gordon Nelson is not a household name in wrestling. Uh, he is, he was a shooter way back as a kid. Uh, and he was from Canada, born in Winnipeg. Uh, he was, he was, but I guess he was the best wrestler of his age group, uh, probably ever in that part of Canada and maybe in all of Canada. Uh, actually, I think he's maybe one of the best of all time as far as the shooter is concerned. But he had this tremendous amateur background, uh, so good that in 1952 and 1956, he was selected for, for the Canadian Olympic wrestling team as a freestyle wrestler. Uh, oddly enough, those two Olympics, one of them I think is in Rome and the other was in Australia. And uh, he did not go. They, they, they didn't send a team. At those two Olympics in 52 and 56 from Canada, they'd sent no wrestling team. So he was kind of screwed out of the chance to make an even bigger name for himself had he been able to go these Olympics because after witnessing what he does and after actually been in the ring with him, uh, you have a feeling that this guy is something else. And uh, he might have gone and won himself a gold medal in 52 and 56 if they had sent a team there. But he was selected to be the freestyle uh, wrestler on the Olympic team. And uh, and it, I'm sure it broke his heart when when they didn't send him. Pretty sad sad way to end your amateur career. But he happens to be in an area in which he meets a gentleman there uh, that's going to teach him uh, basically how to wrestle, how to wrestle professionally. And maybe we'll take a little bit of time here to explain the difference with a lot of fans don't really know the difference between amateur and professional. And, and the, the big deal is, the big difference is, there's several big differences. First of all, in professional wrestling, it's pretty much wide open, and you can do about anything you want to. Uh, you're not supposed to pull hair, and you're not supposed to throw punches, and there are things that you're not supposed to do. But eventually, you're going to end up having to do some of that too. So, But in amateurs, they don't you don't you can't even pick someone up and slam them to the mat now if you're a greco-roman wrestler in the olympics or an, as an amateur you're you you take guys off their feet so you don't but you once you take them down you let them back up and you start again on your feet uh so you you get to be very good at takedowns and you are allowed uh, to do certain things as a Greco-Roman wrestler to lift your opponent from his feet and into the air and then down to the mat. But if you're a freestyle, you're very limited as to, to taking someone down even by removing their feet from the mat. So 
uh, and they also you cannot use in either either the Greco-Roman or the freestyle. You can't use any type of submission type hold. You can't hurt your opponent. You can beat your opponent. You can be rough with your opponent. Uh, you can you can use all your power with your opponent, but you can't put a hold on him that's going to break his arm. Uh, and you can't make them scream. Uh, I'll give people a real great example of this right away. Is the one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, uh, amateur and professional, is Danny Hodge. Danny Hodge wrestled in '60 in the Olympics, and he was a boxer and a wrestler. One of the few people to ever do that in the same Olympics. Won a gold in the in the boxing, and was in the finals in the to win against the Russian to win a gold in wrestling. No one had ever done it before or since or ever will probably. Danny Hodge had that spot. And he was so strong with his grip that he was excited toward the end of the match. And he was it was a very close match with the Russian. And he grabbed his ankle so hard that the the Russian screamed. It hurt him. It actually almost broke his ankle with his hands with his Danny had such a phenomenal grip it was it was painful he could make you he could make you give up by just squeezing your hand you could shake your hand and just make you fall on your knees and beg him to let you go his just power there was awesome and he lost because he hurt the Russian and uh end up getting a gold and a silver in the same Olympics in two different sports really a phenomenal feat well, this guy, uh, after after I found out how how tough he was, and after he he shows us a little bit, and I get in the ring with him, I I right away feel that strength that I felt when I wrestled Danny Hodge, and I think these are the only two guys that I can think of that have that power, that superhuman strength in their body was Gordon Nelson and Danny Hodge. Uh, Gordon Nelson in 1956, supposed to go to the Olympics. He doesn't get to go, but he meets this wrestler, local wrestler in Winnipeg, a name Albert Ole Olson. And Albert Ole Olson teaches Gordon how to wrestle. Uh, he, he obviously does a pretty darn good job of it. And then he's smart enough that he doesn't send him to America. He sends him to, to England. So Gordon goes and spends his first years as a professional wrestler in Wigan. And uh, you're probably familiar with that city in England. It's a shooter's city. Uh, That's lot actually of, the original snake pit. There you go. I mean, uh, it, you know, I, I never I never experienced it. but And I didn't even I wasn't even aware that they called it the snake pit. Makes sense to me because. I was growing up as a kid and all through my career, it was someplace I wanted to go. I was like, gosh, they, they just, it's like a wrestling factory and they all come out of there as tremendous shooters. Uh, I have a feeling, but I never talked to Gordon about this, that he learned the sugar while he was in England. And uh, I had a wrestler for me in 1985 for Continental that experienced Wigan. Uh, was a big part of that, and uh, that was uh, Adrian Street. Uh, Adrian Street was a tremendous shooter. Uh, did not look like it. Kind of a 
odd looking dude, exotic, he called himself. And that was a pretty good explanation of Adrian. He's about as exotic as you can get, but he had those skills. He had those shooting skills and you could see it in the ring. Sometimes he would do these moves that were, they were not American. And, uh, you know, and when I saw the moves, I would say Wigan, I was like, automatically, I think of, of, of England and his background that he had from England. Well, now here goes our boy Gordon Nelson to England and he becomes a star there. He wrestles there as the outlaw. That's his wrestling name. Yeah, he starts in 1957 in Canada, uh, 58. He's in England. Uh, he, his size, he's about 5'11". Uh, when he started in the professional ranks, he was 5'11", about 220 pounds. That's a pretty good size for an athlete. Uh, actually, it's a good size for a wrestler, too. But at that size, you're not too tall. You're not too lanky. You have strength. And in his case, he had monumental strength. He was fabulously strong. So he becomes a monster star in England. Uh, from England, he goes uh, late 50s back uh, to America for his first time. He goes to Amarillo. He starts wrestling for Dory Funk Sr. in Amarillo. Uh, he becomes a huge star there. They call him Mr. Wrestling there which is a pretty good name for a guy with the skills he has. Uh, he is definitely Mr. Wrestling, if there ever was one. Uh, I remember talking to Terry and Junior, uh, Terry, Terry Funk and Dory Funk Jr., uh, been friends with them many years, had many, many conversations with them. And one night we talked about Gordon Nelson, and both of them said, Ron, Terry says he probably had more influence on me as a professional wrestler than anybody. And uh, I don't think Junior was that high on on Gordon, but Junior was very complimentary of him. Uh, you could not be in a ring with a, with a shooter like that, a guy with those skills and that strength, and not be extremely impressed by the guy. And uh, that's what Gordon Nelson did. He just would, right from the first, from the time you look at him, you see that this guy is an athlete. He's a wrestler. He, he's not bulky. You're not going to, I, in fact, I, I like to put photos of people on each episode of the stud cast. And that's my photo for this, this episode 40 is a, is a photo of Gordon Nelson. And, and, and people, I think fans will look and say, wow, I can see it. You know, it's there. The guy was really, really built for wrestling. He's a wrestling machine. Now, he goes back. Uh, he's in Amarillo. Once he leaves Amarillo, he goes and works all around the country. He works in lots of different places. He works in Charlotte for Mid-Atlantic. Uh, he works in California. Uh, he works with my father in Gulf, in Gulf Coast. Uh, in 1959, he's in Gulf Coast wrestling with my father. Uh, he's, 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 he's rambling. He's traveling. He's looking, I think, at that point. He's a young wrestler. He's got that English background now. He has the, the skills that it takes. Uh, maybe the thing that keeps Gordon Nelson from being the huge star that he could have become is he's too good. He's too solid. He's too much a shooter. And sometimes, 
when these shooters get did all this training, they just never make it as a as a professional, never make the name for themselves because they're just they're stiff and and then and their thought processes are different and they just don't quite get what it takes to be a super duper big time star in the in the professional ranks. Uh and and I think that's maybe what happened to Gordon because Gordon doesn't become the monster sensation that he should have been, in my opinion. Um, he marries a strange, this is a strange little story. I find out this, that Gordon m- marries a, a lady named Marie Laverne. Uh, he goes to Charlotte, and he's at a swimming pool in Charlotte, a public pool. He sees a girl across the pool. He goes and introduces himself. And oddly enough, the chances of this are pretty darn infinitesimal. Is is this girl is in wrestling? She is. She wrestles herself. Her mother was named. Her mother was named Anne Anne Laverne, and Anne Laverne was the one of the pioneer lady wrestlers in all the world. Uh, so she comes from a wrestling family. Here is a wrestling guy, if there ever was, and he sees her, has no idea who she was related to, anything else, finds out that she's she's highly involved. Her mother was a wrestler. She was a wrestler. Her biological father is Billy Wolf, and Billy Wolf trained women wrestlers, one of the most famous women wrestler trainers from way back in the day, uh, that there was, and and her stepfather is Pancho Villa, Bobby Lane, who becomes a professional wrestler. He wrestles for my dad as well in Gulf Coast. So it's crazy that what an what an astronomical coincidence that is that he happens to to go around the pool, uh, makes his way around the far side of a swimming pool, and introduces himself, and finds out that he's just met someone who has wrestling connections uh, far beyond anything he could have imagined. Uh, so they get married. They have one son. The son never wrestles, so far as I know. I don't believe he ever wrestles. But uh, Gordon Gordon is, is traveling around the country. He's trying to make a name for himself. He's trying to find a home uh, like a lot of good professional wrestlers do. Let's just take his example, Ric Flair. Ric Flair goes to Charlotte. He's a young guy, and he never leaves. Uh, there's a lot of situations like that. Uh, Bob Armstrong, for as an example, comes to my company, and he never leaves my company. Uh, you know, wrestlers want a home. They they want a life like everybody else lives, and they're on the road all the time. It's a very, very tough and hard life, and they just want to settle root, they set roots somewhere. And uh, and so Gordon Gordon uh, never finds this spot, I don't believe, but. Uh, that's pretty much his history of who he is and how he developed and the places that he wrestled. And uh, and I'm sure you've got some kind of question probably, uh, Brian, knowing you about uh, about something here that, that I have missed. I guess the big thing is I was always under the impression that Gordon Nelson was British. I guess because he trained in Wigan, I never realized he was from Canada. Had you known that? No, I did not do this. I did a little research, and I I never had anybody tell me he was from Canada, and I was surprised as well because I always thought he was English as well. 
but uh, he was actually born in uh, in in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and uh, then ended up being trained. And his first place he actually went was to England, and he made himself a pretty big star in England. And and it was because back in those days. Uh, especially in England, they worked a lot different style than we did in America, and they did not do all the bumps that we did. There were a lot was a lot more wrestling, and his skills were perfect for English wrestling, and that's what made him a pretty big star over there. But he's going to come to America, and and then one morning uh, I go down to the Snake Pit like always, and and. There's a guy sitting there that that I don't recognize. Uh, that's pretty unusual because there there was only about four or five steady guys that came to the snake pit, and when you got another guy sitting there, you you don't know whether to introduce. You don't know whether he's there uh, because he's a mark and uh, and Eddie wants to see him get destroyed, or or what the deal is, you know. And I don't I didn't introduce myself to him because I really didn't know who he was. Uh, eventually Eddie shows up and Eddie goes straight to him. They're longtime friends. Eddie was always very close with Dory senior. Uh, and, and, uh, and when you got friends that are, that are friends with other wrestlers, it's pretty easy for you to get highly involved and create a relationship pretty quickly with someone you don't know. Uh, Eddie's relationship uh, with Junior, I mean with uh, Dory Funk Sr., and then his, Dory Funk Sr.'s relationship with Gordon Nelson. It was a great tie-in. And I, I believe this day that Eddie had asked Gordon to come down, and, and I think he intentionally wanted Gordon to, to get in the ring with uh, some of the guys that had been invited because they had wanted to come. Uh, you know, maybe I need to clear that up for fans out there. Uh, that Eddie's not finding these people. They're finding him. They're coming down and knocking on the door of the office at uh, 106 North Albany, and they're saying, you know, I want to be a wrestler, and I think it's all crap or whatever they're saying, and they're 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 saying all, all the wrong things, and it's they're playing into Eddie's hands very very well, and so that this this morning Eddie's got one guy, one guy only. And that guy shows up. Uh, Gordon, Eddie, and Gordon have a conversation. Uh, we're in the ring doing some things and and uh, doing a little shooting ourselves. The four or five of us that are there, and we notice. I notice that that Gordon disappears. He comes back. He's got on wrestling tights. He's he's ready to go. And then comes the the guy comes in. Uh, this was pretty much the mo all the time in the snake pit is. Those guys that are there that Eddie wants to have taken care of, uh, they don't come in until till he says so. They sit them in a waiting room. They dress them and sit them in the waiting room. And uh, and if Eddie's there, this is the way it's handled. Eddie goes and gets them, and he, he says, I don't know what he says to them, but they show up. So on this particular morning, now we've got Gordon Nelson there. He's dressed now. We recognize well, I don't know who he is, and I don't think anybody else, any of us, know who he is. Uh, but he, we see that Eddie's got something in mind for this guy, and and we're very, you know, we're all pretty well. Like, wow, you know, uh, this guy must be something special, you know. So, 
then he brings Eddie brings in the guy that uh, that uh, is going to be uh, uh, decimated and annihilated for the day. And uh, uh, so he's the guy gets in the ring. Uh, Gordon gets in the ring. Eddie says, uh, you know, uh, Gordon, uh, he doesn't really give him a lot of instructions. He basically says, Gordon, he's all yours. You know, go get him. You know, and uh, so they start. Uh, very quickly, very quickly, uh, you see, I, I could tell instantly that Gordon is a technician. He really knows what he's doing, and uh, he he takes him down. He takes him down probably within uh, ten seconds. I mean, wham! The guy's right on his face, uh, and Gordon's on top of him. Uh, and then he rolls him. He does something that was really it shocked us. I'd never seen that done before. Too is. He goes right away for his hold. Now that's not unusual. Uh, when you're a shooter, you you don't take chances. Uh, you want to end it quick. You know, you don't want to. You don't know who you're competing with. You don't know how good he is. Uh, so you're going to give all of your effort in the first two or three or four minutes to get control of him, uh, get a feel for whether your opponent has any skills or not or knows anything, and then you're always looking for that opening to get your move, uh, to get your finish hold. And uh, in my case, it was my dad's inside toehold. Uh, he called it the fuller, lock, fuller leg lock, and uh, nobody else in the country, very few people in the world could use it. Uh, they couldn't do it because you had to have long legs to do it, and obviously, I had the long legs for it. My dad was pretty tall. Uh, Rob could do it because he was fairly tall. But it was one of those holes that was really, it was unique. And, and we're about to see another hole that is unique and so simple. Uh, that was the beauty of what, what I saw. So he takes him down. Now, it's difficult to describe a wrestling hold. And, and we had a brief conversation about this, Brian. Uh, it's, you know, you... It's hard to tell somebody how to get a wrestling hold. It, it's easy to show them. And so, you know, what we were watching was was pretty foreign to us, uh, you know, not having seen it before. But he, t the guy's on his stomach, and he reaches and, and turns him onto his side. Uh, once he gets the guy on his side, he takes his arm, he, he, he puts the guys, if, if, if the fans out there can imagine, you're laying on your side and you put both of your arms in the air. Uh, he, that's what he did. He forces his arms up into the air and he runs one arm down but between those two arms and, and, toward, and, and behind the guy's head. Okay, so now he's got what's called, I call it a bar. He has a bar here, like a... Like a like you would do if you were going to, uh, to take something apart. That's the way you would do it: is you take a big bar and jam it between the object, and you would pry that object apart. So now the guy's on his side; he's got both his arms over his head, and and Gordon is on top of him. He's run his arm down uh, in front of his uh, of the guy's arms that are sticking up and behind his head. And then he pushes down with his body on top of the top arm. And, and I was like, I'm watching it, and I'm like, well, what in the heck is he doing, you know? Uh, 
it was so simple. I, I couldn't believe it was so simple the way the way he smoothly moved in there and, and got him in that position. Uh, then he started to to take his body and work it round toward the toward the guys so that it forced the guy's arms downward. And because his his arm is behind there, behind the guy's head, when it forced his his arms downward and he started to move around, it like shoved the guy's head down into his his chest, the upper part of his chest, where his collarbones connected, and forced his breathing. You could tell he was cutting off his breathing. The guy you could hear him <clears throat> he's suffering to get air. And he he just kept like a like a machine rotating his body in the same direction and 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 it consistently pushed his head further down into his his collarbone area yeah then it got to a point to where the guy was making these noises and 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 these noises i've heard quite a bit in the snake pit it's it's one of those the squeals like oh, oh you know it's like he's really in a lot of pain and Sitting and looking at it, I couldn't figure out how the heck is he doing this to the guy and it and it hurting him. So Eddie's there, and Eddie walks over to the apron. Now at this point, Gordon's got the guy. He's probably three feet away from the ropes, and he and Eddie walks right to the apron beside him, and and Eddie starts a conversation. Now they're talking like nothing's going on, like there's like like Gordon's not even wrestling anybody, and Eddie says, uh. Geez, uh, what you got there? You know, uh, I don't. I've never seen that hold. And the and the guy that the guys that uh, while this conversation going on, he's, he's he's like he's like gurgling and, and making all these horrible noises. And and Gordon looks at Eddie and he goes very very just softly like they were talking about uh, the having a dinner, you know. And he goes, uh, uh, this is this is my sugar. You know, and, and and we all now now we're all moving up there. We we want to hear this conversation. You know, everybody kind of gets up there close so they can hear what's going on. What's this guy got? And uh, then uh, Eddie goes, uh, "The sugar, huh?" He goes, uh, "I don't think I've ever seen that hold." Uh, he he says, uh, uh, "How bad? How bad can you hurt him with that hold?" And Gordon's got the guy. Gordon's continuing to crank him. He's all the all the time moving that body around and shoving the guy's two arms closer together and cutting his wind off entirely. And Gordon looks back at Eddie, and the guy now is really he's he's just he's panicking. He's 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 dying. He can't tap out because he's he can't touch anything. He can't do anything. He's helpless. And Gordon looks at Eddie, and he goes, uh. Eddie says, how bad can you hurt him? Uh, Gordon says, uh, well, he goes, uh, in about 30 seconds, he'll be bleeding out of his ears. <laughs> and, and with no, I mean, it was no like, geez, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It was just like, well, you know, in about 30 seconds, uh, I'm, he'll be bleeding out of his ears. So casual. Yeah, casual. Just casually, I'm killing him. Basically, I'm murdering this guy. You know, casually, he sells that to Eddie. And Eddie's like, and Eddie doesn't panic. You know, Eddie, Eddie's, he's, he's probably enjoying it, knowing Eddie, you know, and, and Eddie just says, well, that's really a good looking hold, you know, jeez, uh, man, I, I, that, can you really do that? He says, yeah, he goes, yeah, I, I, I can make him bleed out of his ears. It, it may start any time now, 
And I, I'm like, whoa, gee, my knee, this is unbelievable. And finally, uh, Eddie, Eddie says, okay, okay, let him up. Now, the guy is black. The guy's face has turned a dark color. Uh, his wind has been cut off now for probably at least uh, 60, maybe 90 seconds. He's just... And he just—he's unresponsive. He just—he—he flat—he flattens out on his back, and he's shaking. It's like he's in convulsions. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> so is everybody else. Oh, the other guys. Uh, Roop's there. Matsuda's there. I—I uh, I think Jack was there that day. Briscoe was there, and we're all looking at each other like, "Gee, my name, man. What kind of hold is that? You know?" And uh, so. So we they they take the guy and usually they they had a couple of guys Eddie had would have a couple of guys standing by and he'd say get him out of here get him out of here you know so they would haul the guy off and he they take him up front and I don't know where they take him to but you know we're all like looking at each other you know and uh, I think Jack may be the first one Jack goes uh you know God uh, uh, can you show me that hold show me that hold you know and they were all like, yeah, 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 show me the hole. So each one, and, and he was nice enough to do it. I mean, a lot of guys in, in professional wrestling, they can be strange sometimes. Uh, old shooters like to, like to keep their secrets to themselves in case they ever need them. And, uh, you know, he was really polite and nice. He was very nice to all of us. He said, I show all of you this. You know, and uh, so he would explain, hey, this is my, I call this the sugar hole. And he brought him in. He brought Jack in. He did it to Jack. He brought Rupe in. He brought Matsuda in. I went in. Uh, I was astounded when he put it on me, first of all, by his grip. Made me instantly think of Danny Hodge because I had grown up, uh, my dad was great friends with Hodge, and Hodge stayed with us a lot when Danny Hodge came to wrestle for dad. And I was familiar with that grip, and I felt it automatically with him. His power and his strength was just far beyond most guys. It's a, it's just, and you, very few humans have this, you know, and when you find one, if you run across one of those people, especially if you're a wrestler or you're in physical contact with a person like that, you recognize it instantly that there's something in this guy that not everybody has. And that's what I got from that feeling when he put it on me. Um, my dad always told me with a wrestling hold, he always said, if it doesn't hurt, if, if I don't hurt you, you won't learn it. And I always wondered, well, I didn't understand when I was young what the heck that meant. But then, you know, you after a while, you understand the fact that you gain an appreciation for it because of the pain it causes. And uh, right away, man, the pain was there. It was like, wow, this is horrible, man. This is a terrible hold. And it was so easy to get. And that's what pleased me. That's what pleased all of us. Now, we're a group of shooters here, and we're dealing with marks, and we're dealing with actually wrestling people to show them what we can do, and, and, and in a lot of cases, trying to hurt them. And this hold here is simple to get, easy to get, and I it's so easy to get. I watch a lot of UFC, and I see... I see guys put the sugar hold on guys and don't know they've got it and let them up. 
in UFC competition. And I'm like, whoa, man, you got the finish. It's over. It's done. And I'll see them let it go. They'll actually take their arm out. They don't realize that they've got – it's over. They, they've got the killer hold right there. So, you know, strange, strange deal. This hold is very unique and just fabulously effective. Two quick questions for you, Ron. First of all, it's the sugar hold. It's Gordon Nelson's sugar. Any idea of where the name for the hold came from? Uh, no, I, obviously, I have a feeling that it came from England. I don't believe he learned this in Canada. I believe he learned this in Wigan. And uh, and that had to be Wigan because that's what they did there all the time. Uh, and But the name was so perfect. I mean... I understood the name right away and the concept of it because it was sweet. <laughs> if if you're a shooter, that's a sweet hold right there. I mean, it's easy to get a person into it. And uh, that when you're a shooter, like I said earlier, you want to end it quick. Uh, this is your hold because all you got to do is get a guy on his back or on his side. You run that arm down in front of his first arm and then reach and get that second arm, clasp underneath it, shove those arms together and start cranking that body. And you, it's over. I mean, you, you, it's within 30 seconds. Uh, guys don't tap out. They, if they are smart, they start screaming before they lose their breath and their consciousness. You talked about how Gordon was rather soft-spoken, how it was he was very casual in talking about the sugar hold. From your experience, from all the different wrestlers you were around during your career, who were the guys to be more afraid of? The guys who would yell and scream or the soft-spoken guys? Oh, you soft-spoken guys, man. <laughs> you know, you always uh, – my granddad used to tell me, he said, he said, don't worry about the loudmouths. He says, the guy sitting in the corner that ain't talking. He says, there's your man, you know, and uh, I kind of listened to that. And, 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 and in my lifetime in the sport, I found that to be pretty much the case. The loudmouth guys, uh, the part of that n mouth and part of that uh, veracity and all, and the, it's, it's, to, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blanket for their, their, their fear. You know, they, they try to they try to convince you that I'm loud and I'm mean and I'm tough and all that, that that they're trying to hide something. They're trying to hide the fact that they aren't. And uh, I think that's what that's what my granddad was trying to tell me is, you know, don't worry about that guy that's got the loud mouth. It's the guy sitting in the corner that doesn't say much that you really need to watch. Well, we're going to return to the snake pit in just one moment with your questions. But first. Here's a word about Super Studcast number four. Hi, everybody. It's David Summers, and the stud wants to thank all of his fans worldwide for their phenomenal response to both the first Snake Pit Studcast and Robert Fuller's two-hour Super Studcast. Suddenly, the Studcast world is on fire. The stud wants to keep that fire in his fans burning, and to do so, he's following this Snake Pit Studcast with another great Snake Pit episode next week. And if that's not enough, we're going to follow the Robert Fuller Super Studcast with another live guest. The next Super Studcast guest is one of the most famous 
greatest wrestlers on the planet, member of many Hall of Fames, including the WWE Hall of Fame, a personal friend of the Stodge for more than 40 years, the man that in 1982 started the longest family feud in professional wrestling history in one of the most controversial World Heavyweight Championship matches of all time. The Stud will welcome back to the Smoky Mountains the legend himself, Bullet Bob Armstrong. Don't miss a single stud cast. This is David Summers on behalf of the great Brian Lass and your Tennessee stud thanking all of our fans worldwide for supporting and creating Studcast Pandemonium. There it is, Super Studcast number four. It has received such a huge reaction so far. Robert Fuller, for the first time ever, the two Fuller brothers together on a podcast. Of course, you can go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only 2.99 to access that show and we'll talk a little bit more about it at the end of this program but ron as we continue we've received several questions we mentioned the reaction to the snake pit we have these questions here you mind if we ask some questions about the snake pit no no that'd be great actually that's a good thing uh you know i, I know that's been a bound to have been thousands of questions uh about this and uh you know uh yeah, let's have them. I love it. Well, this first one was submitted on Twitter from Blue Meanie Mike. Concerning the snake pit, you've been open about your faith on the Studcast. Has there been times when your Christian faith made it hard to be in wrestling? And I guess there's two questions there, Ron. It's about your faith applied to wrestling, but he did say concerning the snake pit. So also concerning the snake pit, obviously. Yeah. Gosh, great question. I mean, uh, Geez, I, I got I have to think just a second here about about an answer for that one. I mean, I I, I am a Christian. I, I certainly believe in God, and uh, and I believe, uh, you know, and when you when you put the element of of Christianity in, in a snake pit atmosphere, uh, there's a <laughs> well, that's a pretty good question. I mean, how, how do you handle that? Uh, and uh well i guess pr- part of my answer would have to be brian this is when i when you're young i don't think you are uh, your your faith and your and your christianity is not as strong as it is as you get older uh you start to appreciate god more as an older person i believe than you do as a younger person and they got to bear in mind at this point i'm 20 22 years old and a pretty young guy, and uh, I, I, I believe in God, but I also uh, believe that I want to I want to make a living being a professional wrestler, and 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 obviously I wouldn't be down there in that snake pit if I didn't want to go to the limits uh, to learn my uh, my craft and 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 the skills and maybe everything I was going to need to survive. As a professional wrestler, uh, there's a lot of a uh, lot of things back and forth here uh, about you know uh, I saw things in the snake pit undoubtedly that were that would there wasn't much Christianity in a lot of the treatment that I saw uh, and I, I I had my turns uh, there were times when Eddie was my turn and Eddie would say Ron uh, he's yours. And uh, and I knew what that meant, but I did not take it to the extreme that Eddie took it. Uh, I tried to to use my skills as a wrestler, and and I would use these holds 
that were painful, you know, but, uh, but I did not, uh, I had no, I, I, for instance, I like to use the sugar. I would use it in, on Marx because it was beautiful. It was easy. It was sweet, like sugar. It, it, the name was perfect for it. And I would, but I would never to take it to the level to where some guy is going to start bleeding out of his ears. Uh, I knew where, how, how much pain he was in. I knew where, where he was in this thing and, uh, how far it was, had to go before he got into a bad situation to where he might not recover. And I, I never took it that far. Uh, I don't think Eddie ever got upset with me. Eddie never got upset with me. I, I think it was probably because he had a little bit different relationship with me because of my dad. He and my dad were great friends, and I had been on, I grew up with Eddie uh, from the time I was 10 years old, uh, making trips, and he we would do do things. Eddie was wonderful to me, and but I, I saw the bad side of Eddie, but he never, never looked at me at the end of one of these shoots in which I, I, I never lost one, obviously. And I always, I always, uh, won. And, and, and I did it in a way that I hope was going to make Eddie happy, but I wasn't going to take it to where I knew I was going to make Eddie happy. I just, I, and I think probably the reason I didn't do that is might've been because I did, I, I did have that Christian background and, uh, and I just, I did what was necessary to win, and I kind of limited it at that point. In terms of the second part of this question, which was, have there been times when your Christian faith made it hard to be in wrestling? I have to imagine anyone devout in any religion would have a tough time sticking to that in wrestling because you're always on the road. You're always tired. You're always beating yourself up. It's, I don't think it's just about Christianity. It's really any religion. If you're a devout Mormon, if you're a devout Muslim— oh. It's really difficult to be on the road and be a wrestler. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and, uh, and you're right. I mean, you know, it doesn't make any difference what your religion may be. It's a very difficult profession and it's a hard grind and it's extremely tough. And 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 you there are times when when you hurt people and you don't hurt them on purpose. Uh, in the case of you're in a snake pit, you, you hurt them on purpose. But most of the time in the ring, you don't have to, you're not in a position where you have to. So you don't hurt them uh, because, gosh, if, if we hurt each other every night as wrestlers, you wouldn't be there wouldn't be any wrestlers. There, guys, there would be nobody to wrestle. I mean, if you went out there and shot every night, you'd be you'd you'd work one time a, a month. You know, you'd be hurt for a month and you'd get well and you'd go back in the ring. And if you were shooting with everybody, there would be no wrestling as we got to know it and as professional wrestling. And, uh, you know, that's a great question right there. I really, really like that question. That's super. Well, we have one more question here this week from the listeners, Ron, and it is from Randolph Johnson in Seattle, Washington. Who was the toughest wrestler in Florida in the snake pit days? Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, I, that that leads me in a totally different direction, I think, than where people think I'm probably going to go with this. Uh, the, the toughest guy, one of the scariest and most dangerous guys in the state of Florida, in my opinion, ever, uh, was a young wrestler right there with me during this day and time. 
Uh, he didn't come to the snake pit. Uh, now, we're talking about uh, wrestler, maybe not the toughest wrestler, the toughest person, the meanest and, and most. If, if I had to get into a fight with someone, a shoot with someone, uh, he'd be probably one of the last ones I'd want it to be. And nobody is going to believe this. I mean, this is not going to be uh, an answer that people are going to expect. But uh, uh, that guy would be Dick Slater. Uh, Dick Slater. Dick Slater was a monster. And uh, uh, I watched Dick early on. The first experience I had with Dick uh, in a shoot with someone and I'm not going to mention the wrestler that this was involved with, but but uh, he, they were wrestling in Orlando, and I was young. Uh, uh, they were early on in the card, and I was I was on a couple matches after they were. And I watched these two guys, and I saw they got into it. Uh, it got out of hand, and I was watching it, and and. I, I wanted to see how far they were going to take it, and and they didn't take it to where I thought they were going. I thought they were going to be exchanging punches, and it was going to turn from a wrestling match into a into a brawl of some kind. And it uh, they they went ahead and did a finish, and and they came back to the dressing room. And by then, I walked. That's watching the match. I went back and sat down in the dressing room, and so they came in the dressing room and they started having words. And then, uh, the guy that, that was had any altercation with Slater, uh, he started for Slater and Slater hit him with the hardest right hand punch. I think I ever saw, uh, he knocked him cold. Uh, and again, this guy had a, his dad happened to be there. He's, he's right there in the dressing room and bow. I mean, Slater clipped him. It was like, Whoa, geez. Down he went face first in the floor in the dressing room. And, uh, Slater reached and grabbed him by the hair of the head. He's out. And he drug him into the bathroom and, and there was a big doorway in the dressing room. You could see into the bathroom. He drug him and he stuffed his head into the toilet and flushed it. And I was like, whoa, man, I've never, I'd never seen that before. I was like, wow, my goodness gracious. So, so, so then he came back he, and he left his head in there. He, he flushed his head in the toilet and he never looked back to see if he was drowning in it or whatever, you know. And he turned around and he came back. He came back to the door and he looked right at his, the guy's dad. And he says, uh, you want some of it? And uh, his dad just kind of dropped his head, you know. And he that was, his answer was no, obviously, you know. And uh, I was like, wow, I, I'd never seen that before. Then I talked to Mike Graham. Mike and I had a conversation, and Mike and Dick Slater had been friends for many, many years. And Mike says, Ron, he goes, I've seen him do that to several guys. He, uh, and he said, I'll tell you a story. He said, uh, you, back in the days, he said, when they had spring break, a lot of people used to come to Tampa. He said they would come down from all the universities and the, and the football players would, you know, get hotel rooms and they'd stay for four or five days. And 
And he said, uh, University of Tennessee came down one year. They had a linebacker. Gosh, I wish I could remember this linebacker's name because when Mike told me who it was, I was like, wow, I, I remember that guy. He was a great football player. And he says, yeah, he was a bad dude. And he said, everybody was scared of him. He said, they got into it on the beach, Slater. He said, now Slater is in high school, and this kid is a senior in college. And he says, Slater, and the guy got into it. He said, Ron, he said, Slater beat the hell out of him. And he said he beat him so bad that he grabbed him and drug him across the street. They were, because Clearwater, you got the hotels on one side of the street and the beaches on the other side of the street. He said he drug him, he's unconscious across the street and and the football players were following along behind him and, and Slater was saying, Where does, where's he staying? Where's his staying? Where's what room, what hotel? And they said, right there, we're, we're up there on the second floor. And he, he said, Slater drugged this guy all the way to the door of his hotel room, uh, reached in his pocket, got his keys out, opened the door, and drug him in there. And Mike follows along, you know, and Mike's, Mike's in the high school too. And Mike says, he kind of, he said, I stayed back just watching. And he says, he took him into the room and he said, he stuffed his head in the commode. Same deal. He flushed his, Fushed the commode with his head in the commode, and he says the guy came too, and he said Slater spun him around. The guy sitting on his butt in the bathroom floor with his back up against the commode to keep from falling over, and he said Slater told him he says he says how much longer are you going to be here? And uh, the guy he couldn't even talk, and a couple of his friends says well we're here for three more days, and he says. He says, you, when this guy comes to, he says, I want you to tell him that he's not to leave this room until you guys leave three days from now. Y'all can go get him food. You can do anything you want. He says, but I'm going to hang out over here at the beach. And if I see him, I'm going to do this to him again. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> because, so. I, and then I saw, I got to see Slater do that a couple of times to other guys. Uh, so, you know, now the toughest wrestler, Dick Slater was not the toughest wrestler. But Dick Slater was the most dangerous, probably, of any wrestler in Florida back in those days. And when Slater was in Florida, he was the most dangerous in the state. Don't make any difference when it was. It was, he was the man and uh, those people in wrestling that really know tough guys, uh, they'll they'll have that same answer probably. Stories about Dick Slater's toughness have been legendary from the wrestler Sting getting that toilet treatment that the wrestler you mentioned before got to John Matusik getting his ass kicked by Dick Slater. There you go. Matusik, the big bad son of a gun, right? I mean, everybody says, right? Yeah, he was a bad guy, and Dick Slater handled him. But let me ask you, you said Dick Slater did not really come to the snake pit. Why do you think that is, that a guy like Dick Slater, who was that tough, didn't come? And also, Mike Graham. Mike Graham and Dick Slater went to school together. Mike Graham's father is obviously the ringleader of the snake pit. Was Mike Graham ever there? Uh, Never. Very seldom. I, I don't think he was ever there. I don't ever remember Mike coming. Uh. And I think it was, uh, hey, <laughs> to be quite honest with you, it was not a good place to come. 
You know, there was a lot of days I went there and I, I went home, you know, hurting and, and going, what in the hell am I doing? Uh, I had my brother tell me that one time, you know, he goes, what do you go down there for, Ron? And I go, because I may need this someday. I don't want to get in a position someday down the line in which I get into it with some guy in the ring and I can't take care of myself. And, uh, you know, but it, it was not a good place to go. And, and every time you went in there, you were shooting with, you were shooting with the guys like Roop and Matsuda and, and Jack and, and sometimes Don Curtis and, you know, they're, it's just, it's, it's really tough. It's very tough place to be. Uh, I also had two other guys that came in one time <laughs> that uh, made the same comments uh, was Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch. And I remember they came in, there was no marks there that day and we were shooting. I can't remember who was in the ring or whatever. And they sat on the first row and they looked at each other and uh, and I was watching them, and they looked at each other, and then they looked back at the ring, and they look at each other, and then finally, you know, how Dusty is got a day, you know, you boys, uh, you gotta you gotta get your stuff. What are you doing here? I mean, what are you you, you who you can't you don't gotta do this, you know? It's like, <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's true. We really don't have to do it, but. You know, there was a lot of guys that just could not fathom it. They they couldn't. They was like, what what in the world is this all about? Did you ever actually apply the sugar during a match? And also, we know the story of Bob Roop having a sugar hole challenge for ICW in 1981 in Kentucky. And William Harding, a martial arts enthusiast, got out of it. A story famously told on the 605 Super Podcast. One of the reasons he says he was able to get out of it was because at that time he was very slight. He was not a bigger guy. So with there. the sugar hold specifically, who were people susceptible to getting out of the sugar hold? And what complications, if any, would you have if you tried to apply it to someone? The people that were likely to get out of it is somebody who's extremely limber. Uh, and I think that's what happened with this guy in Kentucky. I believe it's that took place in Kentucky somewhere. Yeah. And, and uh, what happens is, is if those arms, if you're very limber and you've got those arms uh, together anyway, and they can slide in there uh, to where the shoulders almost touch themselves, then you lose their leverage. It's wrestling is all a, it's all based upon leverage, and uh, the leverage there is is the fact that those arms don't go like they're not meant to bend that direction. But if you've got a woman as an example who is extremely, a woman could escape the sugar hole better than a man could because you can't get her arms. They're not rigid enough, and they're not spread far enough apart to be able not to for to get the leverage that you need to make the hold work. So, yeah, I understood when I, I heard the story about uh, Roop actually not being able to, uh, you know, to beat this one guy with it. And and I could, I could see that if the guy was thin and he was very limber, that, that he might get in a position where he could break and get out of that hold. And uh, that, uh, that, that's a, it's a most unusual thing. I, I I would have liked to have seen that match, but the answer to the other part of the question is yes. I used the sugar many times, and uh, in Australia, 
I was wrestling Marks in Australia. They wanted to, they would have you wrestle one a night. Uh, Bob Brook was there. He worked with Marks. He worked. He was in the ring doing that, and I was doing it some nights. And 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 you put the sugar hold on him. I remember one time going to wrestle for Jarrett in in Jackson, Tennessee, a little town probably fifty miles, sixty miles north of Memphis, and and a Mark came to the ring, got on the microphone, and said, you know, I, I challenged the wrestlers. And I'm standing in the back along with the other wrestlers, and and everybody but me disappeared. The other guys didn't want to wrestle this guy, you know. And I was like, no, wait, whoa, 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 you know. Uh, so uh, the guy challenged, and nobody said anything. So, and I looked, and everybody was gone. So I went in the dressing room, and, and I said, what the hell's wrong with you guys? And they go, uh, well, we, we don't know. The guy might be tough. He, he might beat us. He might do this. He might do that. And I said, oh, boys. I said, you know, this is bullshit. I said, you guys, you're, you're not going to see me embarrassed here. I said, you know, y'all may be, I can't believe nobody in this room has the balls to go out there and do what needs to be done. And, uh, oh, they all just dropped their head like, oh, geez, man, not me, not me. So I went out and, uh, God, it turned out the guy was a nothing, you know, and, and they went out and it's really funny. Now, when you, when the guy, when you have a regular wrestling match, all the boys, uh, nobody wants to see it. You'll look back there and there won't be anybody watching it, but you have a shoot. I went out there and got in the ring with this guy. Every one of those guys in the dressing room, both dressing rooms, <laughs> they lined up along the wall, man. It was like, gosh, man, we got to see this. Right. So, and, and the guy was really, you know, it was nothing. It was because I was used to this stuff. So, so I took him down and I played with him and I, I just, I, in fact, I laughed through a lot of it. I took him down and I got on, got him on his hands and knees and I, I, I laid on my stomach and I just twirled around on top of him. And then I flipped over on my back, my back to his back. And I twirled around on top of him. And then I just flipped him over and put him in the sugar and bang, you know, <laughs> right away he quit. Right. And, uh, and I went back to the dressing room and you would have thought I had beat the world champion. They were like, God, Ron, that was great, man. They were pounding me on the back. Wow. I never seen anything like that. And I was like, geez, guys, I mean, this is nothing. I said, you guys, I, it's just, it's amazing. In certain parts of the country, there were not a lot of guys that could shoot. And there was, there was fear sometimes when, when people got in the ring or if somebody made a challenge or whatever and all, all those trips to the, to the snake pit enabled me not to have that fear. I, I didn't have any fear of wrestling anybody because I knew what I could do and I knew what they couldn't do. And, uh, it just, and, and with the difference between the sugar hold and my dad's hold, uh, just real quickly, since we're talking about this, is my dad's hold was, in, was an inside toe hold. Uh, it had to do with a grapevine, difficult to describe a grapevine, but ultimately my dad's hold was unbreakable. It was unbreakable and, 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 and so unforgiving that uh, in any man, you could break anybody's leg with it that you wanted to. And I accidentally in college got into an altercation with a kid one night that challenged me 
And we went out in the yard of his house. It was a big party, and and he wanted to wrestle me. And I was like, wow, you know, I, you know, I don't really want to do this. So he started throwing people in his family. It was his dad's home. He was throwing people, men and women, into the swimming pool. And he left me and my girl that was with me, he left her alone. And then finally he challenged me, and he says, I want to wrestle you. And I said, well, you know, thank goodness he wanted to wrestle me. I, you know, I knew a little wrestling. I wasn't through the snake pit yet, but I knew a little wrestling. So I said, okay. So he said, let's I do it right out there in the front yard in the grass. So I went out there, and he went back in the house. And he comes back out. He's got an Olympic wrestling uniform on. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I've got a friend with me. And I look at him, and I go, oh, my gosh, are you? kidding me the guy's a damn olympic wrestler you know so anyway we get ready to go at it and and he says well what do you want he says no no need to do takedowns what do you want you want top or bottom well man you know if you're an olympic wrestler man i said give me top you know i'll take top you get on your hands and knees we'll start from there and he got on his hands and knees and luckily i had my dad's hold there man i had that old i knew how to get that inside toehold and uh when somebody said go, I grapevined him, and I grabbed the leg back there, the same leg that I'd grapevined, and when I pulled on it, I was very hyped. I was really, really hyped. I was scared I was going to get my ass whipped and humiliated, part of it, and uh, and I just I went overboard. I, 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 I grabbed it, and I ripped it, and I, and I didn't break his leg. I tore his knee out, and usually you can't do that. You know, and it and it went, oh. went a noise like that, ligaments and all that, right, ripped, and the guy was screaming. Now, I, our match lasted three seconds, five seconds, right? And the guy screamed, ah, and I got up, and he laid there and just rolled and screamed, and, oh, God, he's ruined me. I'm dead. That's horrible. Oh. You know, and I, I told the guys with me, I said, we got to get out of here. <laughs> Cops are going to come and get me or something, you know, but... It, that hole my dad had was truly unbreakable. It was truly, you, no one could survive it. Uh, you could break legs with it if you needed to. And uh, I thought, in my estimation, sugar hole was a fabulous hole. It was easy to get, and it worked great for me. I never had a problem with anybody getting out of it or not giving up. But if I'd have really had to go to my really go-to hole, it would have been the inside toe hole, the old fuller leg lock. Yeah, no one expects a rolling knee bar. <laughs> and, then you, and then you hit it, and it's like, oh, my God. I got to ask you, though. Here you are. You're in college. You open this door. You are six foot nine. You're playing basketball, so you're an athlete. Whose party was this? How big was this guy, this Olympic wrestler, whose knee you tore out? Uh, I never, I didn't know who he was. It was one of those situations where the girl I was uh, dating, she was uh, – she was uh, back in the University of Miami days. They had girls that actually went and got the bat, the bat girls. They call them. They had a name for these girls. And she was a pretty girl. And she knew this the party. And she said, there's a party at this house. And I said, oh, well, OK, let's go. You know, all right. And she wanted to go. And, and then I had another guy on the basketball team, my basketball team. His name is Rick Law. He's a, still a friend of mine to this very day. And and he had a girlfriend that was doing the same thing. And, and he says, okay, let's go. So we end up going to this house. We don't know where it's at. The girls get us to wherever it is. And we start in the the night. 
and he starts right away. He's got a he's in one room and he's got he's doing arm wrestling with uh everybody in the, every guy in the house. And yeah, and, and and you know, and I'm trying to avoid him, you know. It's like and he's probably uh six two, uh maybe two twenty, somewhere in that that's he's a fair sized guy, you know. Uh but he's he's beating everybody at arm wrestling and, and I just keep moving from room to room and he comes into that room and he starts challenging there. Then he finally comes and he starts throwing people in the pool. I'm serious. He throws every single person at the party in the pool, except for me and my girl and my buddy and his girl. You know, I and I guess that was some respect he was showing me anyway. But I kept avoiding him. And then finally, after everybody's wet and drenched and all that, and he comes to me and he says, now it's your turn. You know, I won't arm wrestle you. And I said, you know, I basically said, no, let, let's, let's just wrestle. Let's go out in the yard there, and we'll wrestle out there in the yard. I figured I had a better chance in arm wrestling. The guy's probably pretty good at arm wrestling, you know, but uh, I knew a little bit of wrestling. But then when he comes out with the Olympic uniform on, it's like, oh, my goodness, man, what a dummy I've been, right? So kind of strange, man, the stuff you get into as a college kid. Uh, but all of that stuff, because of my dad taking care of my Rob and I and teaching us some shooting and teaching us how to take care of ourselves, uh, it sure served me well that night. Ron, I love a good party. That sounds like the worst party of all time. You go there, and the guy's arm wrestling everyone. Then he throws everyone in the pool. That sounds yeah. like the worst party. What a great what, yeah, what a great party. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know. And, and we probably wasn't there 45 minutes. It ain't like it took a long time for all this to occur. I mean, uh, and I can't imagine anybody having been thrown in the pool that didn't just leave and go home. But I think when the challenge was made between me and him, oh, everybody, it was like everybody went out. It wasn't just me and him went to the front yard. Uh, they all went. <laughs> there was a huge crowd, and they were all cheering for me, Daddy, because this cat already tossed him in the pool. They, I'm sure they wanted to see me hurt him, and uh, it happened to be that night I did. It's like 20 wet people standing around watching this guy in an Olympic singlet <laughs> yeah. go up against the biggest guy at the party. <laughs> it's crazy. It's a crazy. What a crazy night, yeah. Yeah, there's one that'll be good in uh, in the movie when we do the Tennessee Stud movie right there. But uh, as we begin to wrap things up, first of all, I'm going to do this on time for once. You have to pick a winner. Which question do you pick this week, Ron? Uh, I tell you, the first best question was really, really great. But but I love the opportunity to talk about Slater, and uh, I'm going to take the 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 second gentleman. Uh, uh, I'll take his question about uh, who was the, the toughest wrestler in, in the Florida uh, in the snake bit days. And, you know, I, I don't think it was just the snake bit days. I think one of maybe the toughest individual uh, possibly in, in America, <laughs> or certainly one of them was, was Dick Slater. Well, there it is. The winner, Randolph Johnson in Seattle, Washington. Uh, stay tuned, Randolph. Someone will be in touch with you from the show. And, of course, we'll be talking more about Dick Slater in the weeks and months ahead. He is someone who will work for Ron in Southeastern, who Ron will work with in Florida. So much more Dick Slater to come here on the show. As we begin to wrap things up, be sure to have a listen to the most popular Super Studcast yet. Of course, I'm speaking about Super Studcast number four with Robert Fuller. It's available at tnstud.com or 
patreon.com slash studcast only $2.99 if you are a patron of the show for $2.99 a month you get access to every single super studcast as well as every single rest of the story and of course the rest of the Robert Fuller story will be available exclusively to patrons of the show when it's released on Sunday April 29th you can of course follow the Tennessee stud on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch and you can like the Tennessee stud on Facebook His page is Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. Stud, what should we expect to hear on this show next week? Are we returning to the snake pit one more time? Yes, sir, we are. Uh, I think uh, the next one may cover it. It, And if it doesn't, we're going to go there four times if necessary. Uh, It's one of my favorite topics. It's, It's a great experience and a great part of my life as a young wrestler and and uh, we're going to go back there next week. We're going to start with some Bob Roop stories. Uh, you, met, you mentioned Bob Roop earlier. Bob Roop, were, uh, there are a couple incidences that take place there. Uh, Bob Roop is probably closer to Eddie's mentality than any of us in that, in that group that go down there on a regular basis. And, and uh, there are, we're going to continue in the snake pit. Uh, we may finalize the snake pit next week. And, uh, if not, we'll we'll come back and, and do it the following. But, uh, yeah, we're going to come back and do the snake pit again, and we're going to tell some Bob Roop stories. I'm going to tell a couple of stories that wrestling fans are going to go, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it's that place was – there was no place like it on earth. We will return to the snake pit next week here on the show, but – In the meantime, for the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller, I am the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.